Thank you for listening to the Yahoo Finance Presents podcast, the bonus episode. I'm Alexis Christophorus. On April 5th, Jamie Dimon, CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, gave Yahoo Finance an exclusive interview that coincided with the release of Dimon's annual letter to shareholders. Yahoo Finance Editor-in-Chief Andy Serwer sat down with Jamie Dimon to discuss tax reform, tariffs, and what keeps him up at night. Here is the full, unedited interview. I'm here with Jamie Dimon, CEO of J.P. Morgan. Jamie, nice to see you. Thanks for sitting down. Andy, thrilled to be here. So um, you have just released your letter to shareholders, and in the letter you write a lot about trade, immigration, and China, all Mm -hmm. that very much in the news these days. And you kind of laid out a playbook on how to deal with China. Can you walk us through that and talk a little bit about how your ideas may be different from what the administration is doing? Right. So, you know, we... Basically, the business community generally doesn't support tariffs. And the fear about tariffs is that it's tit for tat. You do this, they do that, and maybe kind of have a snowball effect that you can't completely predict. But I think it's very important whenever you look at issues like trade, what are the actual facts and the reality? So there are legitimate complaints around trade. The president's pointed them out. His staff has pointed them out. Those are around uh, intellectual property, subsidy state on enterprises, non-tariff barriers, lack of reciprocity in what you can own. So we should acknowledge that. And by, I think the Chinese know that. And so, you know, our view is that you should really, what you should do is tell them what you really want, tell them when you want it, and tell them what you're going to do about it. Listen to what they may have legitimate complaints, too. As I always say, listen to the other side a little bit. Don't be one-sided about it. And then work out a deal. And, you know, the president has pointed out that negotiations haven't worked. That may be true, but I don't know how you get to a deal without having some kind of conversation. So I think that the best way to do it and the best thing for America, jobs, China, et cetera. So you're concerned, though, that this tariff, this tit-for-tat could end badly? You know, listen, it could end well. I mean, maybe the president will get a great deal quickly. But these things, the problem with these things, they tend to create things happening that you, don't, you really can't control at one point. And that, so the fear is that that's going to happen. I hope they end up in the right place. Like I said, I think the Chinese are quite bright. I think the Americans are quite bright. I think, you know, when you listen to them, they say they want a deal. They just want it to be different than it is today. And so hopefully that will happen. So you talk about the benefits of globalization. I think a lot of people understand that. It certainly benefits J.P. Morgan. But, Jamie, what about the people, say, here in the United States who are left behind, who've lost their jobs because of factories going overseas, for example? So first of all, particularly your audience, you've got to look at the big picture, okay? Billions of people out of poverty could happen. Diseases around the world are disappearing. People are living longer. So all this stuff has been an absolute wonderful thing for mankind. That does not mean there weren't problems. So, you know, and I do think you talk about people left behind here. Low, the wages haven't gone up enough. You know, certain factories, you know, we've lost 10 million factory jobs. Uh, education system's not working. We have a terrible time building a bridge. It takes 10 years. So we should acknowledge those problems and start to fix them. And the way you fix it is by actually having policy that works. You know, the American public, I, I hope they know that from the time that President Kennedy said we should put a man on the moon as a vision, eight years later there was a man walking on the moon. From the time that you say, let's build a bridge, it takes 10 years to get the permits to build a bridge. Not to build it, to get the permits to build it. Now, what, what have we done to ourselves when we do that? So I just think there are a lot of fixes. You know, I, I wrote an op-ed today about the earned income tax credit, you know, kind of a negative income payroll tax, give a little more income to low-wage earners. Education systems that when you graduate high school, vocational school, community college, that you've had apprenticeships, it leads to a job. There are a lot of well, good-paying jobs out there that are not being filled. So there are huge fixes to our problems. And, you know, we just got to start working them. With immigration, you wrote, we need to resolve immigration as tearing apart our body politic and damaging our economy. 
immigration reform is important both morally and economically. But how do we realistically achieve that with our political um, problems these yeah. days? So, you know, I think, uh, and I think this is achievable, and I'm hoping the president is the Nixon of immigration. The American public, you know, legitimately in 1986, we had amnesty. Three million people came forward and got a path to legal status or citizenship. And people said, never again. So here we are 30 years later, and now there's 11 million undocumented. So there's a legitimate thing about every nation has the right to proper border security. And the people have to believe it. I personally think if somehow President Trump get, can tell the American public, I've done it, it then leads, opens the door to the other things. Do, we all think DACA should stay. Everyone. And so is the president. He said it publicly. He said it privately. It means I've been with him. Uh, we should give, you know, most of the 11 million people are hardworking, taxpaying, law-abiding folks in America, give them a path to legal status over 10 or 15 years to citizenship. Uh, uh, and most people, actually, if you look at polls, support those things. They're not mad at the, at the immigrants. They're mad at the system that failed them and they, we couldn't stop people coming in. So a deal's doable. Schumer and McCain had a deal in the Senate. The Senate voted for it, never went to the House. So I, I just think there, there's the pieces coming together, someone's got to have the fortitude to get it over the line. And, and by the way, for the America, uh, the other thing is green cards. We educate 300,000 kids a year, foreign nationals, who pay full boat. The universities brag about it's one of the largest exports of America. I tell the American people, yeah, we're exporting brains. Okay, this is not a good thing. A lot of those people stay here for jobs. Give them a green card, 300,000 people. And proper immigration reform, by the way, the economists say would grow the economy 0.3% a year. I mean, that's a, that's a huge benefit for everybody. So, you know, to me, let's, let's, let's get the policy right and move on. I know this isn't your purview, Jamie, but have you really, have you thought about how to fix all the squabbling in Washington? You talk about McCain and Schumer. They had a deal that died. So, so how are we ever going to resolve this stuff, God, God knows. You know, that's not, that is not my purview. Right. But I do know when I see things that don't work, when people don't talk, well, that doesn't work. When, you, when I can't listen to what you have to say, I tell people, if you're a Democrat, you know, read, read Arthur Brooks and George Will. If you're a Republican, read Tom Friedman. You know, talk, talk about what you want as an outcome. It, you know, it's very often the, we're arguing before we are talking about the outcomes. We want the same outcome. And we're arguing about the path there. So I think there are ways that people can get together. I think business has to be part of it. I think government doesn't have all the solutions on its own. And so there are ways, but, you know, we need political leadership that gets that done. So I want to switch over and ask you about the markets a little bit. Um, during the Trump administration, we've had tax reform, repatriation, we've had deregulation, and that's um, helped the markets trend a lot higher. So what would be the catalyst to take the market higher from here, or are we going to be entering a period where there's no catalyst and maybe stagnation in terms of the capital yeah. markets? So I, think, I think tax reform and regulatory reform are good for the economy and therefore the markets, and trade kind of goes the other way. Depending how, how that gets worked out, trade can go the other way. I think there, if you wanted to get things right, getting infrastructure right, getting education right, those things would be great for the long-term growth of America. You know, the markets and when the next recession is going to happen, that's a little harder to predict or a little harder to manage. But why wouldn't you do all the things that are right for the long term? Like, why? I mean, we've gone from having the number one infrastructure in the world to we're not even the top 20 of developed nations anymore. And so, you know, to me, let's, let's, let's move on. Let's, like, fix this stuff. And a lot of that is political fixes, local agreements, you know, some budgeting, fiscal. It's, it's co infrastructure is complex, but it's doable. I mean, does the American public realize that our air traffic control system is an ancient system? That we actually believe if you put a modern system in, that plane flights would be 20 minutes less and CO2 would go down by 20%. Why can't we get that done? I mean, I, it's staggering. We just can't get something like that done. And most of the rest of the world already has it. No, it's shocking when you go overseas, yeah. right? Yeah. 
Um, so I want to ask you a little bit about um, the economy with regard to rates. And you say interest rates, the possibility of, of wages and interest rates rising faster than anticipated is a real possibility. Yeah. So what are the chances of that and what would be the implications? Yeah, so look at, you got to look at two things first. It's not just rates rising, it's the why. So if the economy is getting stronger, and I actually think it is getting stronger, and rates are going up you know, 25, 50, 75 basis points, rates are not as important as a strong economy. One is more important than the other, so that's fine. What I, what I pointed out is that if inflation is worse than, so I think there's a chance. And again, this is probabilities. I'm not, I'm not guessing, but I think the odds of inflation and wages going higher than people expect as we get near the tail end of the slack of the system, that then they're going to have to raise faster than you think. And that, that's when markets get very upset, when expectations get you know, changed and people worried about it and then start to worry about inflation. If the Fed really starts to worry about it, and they raise rates faster than people think, well, that, that is what has often caused a recession. And obviously no one wants that, but that, that is, the, you know, is the makings of it. But a higher rate environment is, is a positive for J.P. Morgan? Are you starting to see the benefits of that? A stronger economy is, mm -hmm. and all things being equal rates are. If you have inflation and rates go up because of that and you go into recession, that's no way good for J.P. Morgan. So uh, what about Jay Powell? What's your take on him? How is he doing? Early days still, but what's your feeling? He, he's doing great. You know, he's an adult. He's, uh, he knows what he's doing. He's been in the, the, the uh, business economy. He's been at the Fed for a long time. And it's a tough job, but I think you know, he's doing great so far. And the mandate that he sort of laid out in terms of the number of increases this year makes sense to you? It's logical, yeah. reasoned? I mean, you know, I always point out to people, the Fed doesn't always determine what's, they don't determine what's going to happen in the future. Sometimes they have to react to it. So it's a little bit of a mistake to act like they're going to set all that. So, you know, J Janet Yellen survived, you know, did a good job, but it was during very calm times. You know, you can argue she made it calm or she... She might argue with that. Well, but I'm not... When you look at economic history, right. it's not clear that they caused that to happen. There's so many factors that affect the global economy. You know, Jay may actually have to operate in more turmoil at one point, which has been more normal for some of the Fed governors. And so we'll see. But I think they have, you know, they're... They are adults, they're smart, they know what's going on, they're always analyzing what's going on around the world, and so uh, and, you know, obviously we all should hope they do a great job. Regulation, is the banking system, I know you get asked this a lot, Jamie, but is the banking system really safer now? I think the, first of all, regulation in general, think of bureaucracy. One of the things I put in my letter is even George McGovern, the most liberal Democrat who ever ran, ran a small inn up in Connecticut somewhere, and he goes in his op-ed in the Wall Street Journal about how hard it was to follow his rules and regulations and run his inn. And by the way, he says, not everyone who fell down outside my inn was my fault, and the litigation system is causing huge problems for small business. Now, he had to like leave Congress to, to learn this lesson, but he advised all legislators to spend a little time in the real world before you pass legislation. So small business formation is lower than it's ever been in America. So our entrepreneurial country, it's been coming down like this, and the main culprits are probably regulation, the cost of regulation, the difficulty of opening a business, and lack of access for new businesses to get credit. So existing businesses have pretty, have pretty good access to it. So, um, so I think it's a big deal that we, we should tell the American public we need smart regulation. No one I know is saying get rid of regulation all better. You, you want clean water, you want clean air, you want safe banks, you want safe highways. Uh, <clears throat> now, talking about banks alone, yeah, the capital in the system is so high, okay, that it's staggering. And we should acknowledge that. And that capital is idle capital if it's not used. So, of course, you want strong banks, but you also want tons of idle capital, idle liquidity forever. So I think, you know, to me, the Treasury put out a report going through all the things in banks, and I won't bore your public with it. It's mostly calibration. No one's expecting to throw out Dodd-Frank or anything like that. It's mostly about 
what, which of the, and these are really complex rules about collateral and derivatives and liquidity and global transfers and, and you know, if they, and if they do it right, you'll have more mortgage availability, more credit availability, it'll be good for America, you'll have stronger economy, stronger growth, and that's what you want. And it won't add any, any risk at all, because these are not things about risk, these are things about actually doing the job of a bank. So net-net, right amount of regulation for banks you know, they should today? Be, they should reduce some of it and coordinate it across capital the board. Capital requirements a little bit? A little bit, but it's, it's again, it's all about calibration. Right. How, when you say capital, you know, how you calculate capital. You know, America, the American public doesn't know this, but the, and American banks are in great shape, partially because banks and regulators acted faster and earlier than the rest of the world. But, you know, if they overshot it, and it's far more conservative now than European banks, I have to compete with those guys too one day. So I'm a little concerned, you know, it's one thing today, but over 10 or 20 years, you gotta be a little careful about, you know, putting the, the uh, you know, hamstring in American banks. You mentioned tax policy. I want to drill down a little bit there. Um, you wrote uh, in your letter, I'm pleased we did the right thing, not the easy thing. Congress took a historic step in 2017 to reform America's broken and outdated tax code. So my question is, was there any cost to this giant tax cut? I mean, it was, in other words, it was just free money? No. So the, remember, the, first of all, we, I'm commenting about the business part, okay. not the individual. Right. Because we all argue the individual side. And the again, the American public, just so you get clear, everyone had a 40% tax rate around the world. They pretty much, the rest of the world has pretty much come down to 20 to 22. There's yep. over 20 years, and we stayed up here. The, res the, the result of that, brains, capital, and companies have been overseas for 20 years. That's had an insidious effect on the U.S. economy, capital, R&D, and it's made it much less attractive to build a plant here than build a plant overseas. So we needed to have a competitive tax system. And I don't buy this argument, well, we didn't need it now. We should have a competitive tax system in good times and bad times. So we, we did that. So the whole tax reform bill, probably you know, over 10 years, will add that trillion dollars to the deficit. In, that in and of itself is not a material number. Yeah. The deficit today, net debt is 15 trillion, GDP is 20. If you added 1 trillion today, it's 16, GDP is 20. That's not gonna change anything. The real, I, I put in my letter, the real issue in America is that that rate continues to go up, the debt, but in, in about 20 years from now, it's going to be 150%. And it's all about entitlement systems. So, you know, to me, have a competitive tax system that attack the real problem, which is medical. And, right. and, and not just for the government, that's true for America. We spend 17% of GDP in medical. You know, I tell people we have some of the best and some of the worst. But let, let's, like, fix it a little bit. I want to talk about medical in a second, yeah. but wait a minute. So the tax cut costs... A trillion, dollars, a trillion dollars, but yeah. the benefits but, 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 outweigh but, that. The benefits outweigh it, and I think it'll cause some growth. It'll more than make up for, maybe make up for all of that. That's right. my own opinion. But my, my, I guess when you run a company, you have table stakes. You know, do a great job for your client. I think a competitive business tax system is table stakes the American economy. I think to somehow think yeah. you have an uncompetitive tax system and it'll be good in the long run when you have this huge global competition taking place, it's just a mistake. It's not the way to run something. And you know, to me, that should be done. And then you know, if you have a tax on like me a little bit more, I'm fine with that. But don't mess up the economy. That the economy is what drives jobs, wages, R&D, innovation. It's why we have the best military on the planet. It's the economy, stupid. And let, let's, let's learn how to nurture that economy. And then we can afford more, by the way. We can afford to take care of more people, put more in schools, put more in infrastructure. So don't mess up the economy in the name of something good. All right, let's talk about health care. And here is a situation or an issue that you guys are really doing something. I mean, you've gotten yeah. together with Amazon and Berkshire Hathaway. Can you give us an update 
on that. And also, can you talk about the genesis? Was this like you and Warren and Jeff just getting on the phone and saying, hey, let's do this? Yeah. So the, for the again, 17% of GDP is healthcare. You know, Warren calls it the tapeworm of American society. And it's, it's, also, it's, it's the thing that can bankrupt the government, and it's the thing that's good, it's, it hurts our competitiveness. So in America, we have the best and the worst, and the best doctors, pharmaceuticals, best outcomes. You know, you, you, a lot of people from around the world, they come here and they have certain diseases. On the other hand, our outcomes are bad in a lot of cases. We don't have wellness programs, 40 million people uninsured, uh, and the cost is too high. So the, the effort, we all know it's got to be fixed. A lot of companies are doing great stuff. So it was Todd Combs who was on my board. He and I were always talking about some of these issues, and we could start. for Berkshire Hathaway. He, he, he's Warren's, you know, one of Warren's right-hand guys. Right. Uh, he, and he's an expert in some of these. He, we're going back and forth about what's not working, and we just started thinking, let's, let's take a crack at it. Remember, we already do this. We buy insurance, and we self-insure it for all of our employees. We do wellness programs, chronic care, uh, education, nutrition, gyms, all these things trying to get our employees healthier, uh, but we know we can do better. If you look at the problems, overutilization and underutilization, end of life, where, which is 20% of the cost, and probably, in my opinion, half of that's wasted. People don't want what they gain end of life. Chronic disease is a, a big part of it. Uh, a lot of chronic disease is lifestyle, obesity, and smoking, which drives cancer, stroke, heart disease, and depression. So a lot of things can do. So we're going to hire, we haven't done anything yet. We're going to hire some great people, CEO, big data, medical law, medical scientists, and start to, start to and we're going to start small. We're not going to go for a home run. About what can we do to improve each piece of what I just said? And then, you know, over time, hopefully, it'll be great for us. And, you know, we'll share, this is a not-for-profit thing. We're not trying to do anything. And anyone who can help us, we're willing to work with. We want to do a better job here. Maybe we'll find some ways to do it. And it could be a template for the rest of the country. Yeah, I see. we see no downside. Warren's quite excited about it. Jeff is quite excited about it. We see upside. And the big upside would be somehow we learn some great lessons and we can help inform the country how to have proper policy. We, we have to do some of that healthcare. Speaking of Warren Buffett, Jamie, he told me that he blew it by not buying J.P. Morgan stock. Right. He acknowledged he, he that. He owns it personally. But right, he, and he, yeah. he also mentioned that he owns it personally, which I don't really understand. But anyway, so do you ever ask him why he didn't buy it? I mean, he bought uh, Goldman Sachs, he bought Wells. That hasn't probably worked out so well recently. Yeah, I, you know, Warren, first of all, Warren's one of the great investors of all time. And he's very clear when he looks at things about what he invests in. And you know, he's been a kind of a mentor. I've been reading his letters for, since literally. I went back and got the partnership letters from 1956. And you know, getting smart all the time, trying to learn what takes on. So he tries to do things which are, are more predictable. And it would, it would be hard to look at J.P. Morgan Chase. I think today it's far more predictable. Like 10 years ago, and say that was predictable. These were more volatile businesses, and and you know, we weren't necessarily performing all the areas and stuff like that. So he tends to stay away from that. He doesn't really like turnarounds, which I would say Bank One early on, J.P. Morgan kind of were. Uh, and I, I don't blame him. You know, he's not looking for to to guess. So, but the bank has been a serial outperformer, and you know it, it is hard. I mean, it's a volatile business. I mean, just look at Wells again. Um, so, what is it that's going on here that creates that outperformance? Yeah. So we don't worry about volatility, believe it or not. And I, I, it's the kind I kind of consider a friend. And remember, all businesses are episodic, some more than others, and there's no, there's no magic to 12 months. So when people look at like fixed income trading, well, it's not magical. But the fixed income markets of the world are going to double in the next 12 years and double again you know, 20 years after that. And people need to buy and sell securities, and we're very good at it. So our view has always been invest relentlessly in your businesses, training, people, uh, technology, 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 to give you more, better, faster, quicker, so that people like us and they vote with their feet. So we, you know, when we gain shares because we're doing a good job, 
And since we don't really that much about the episodic stuff, the ups and downs, don't worry that much about earnings on a quarterly basis, you know, we can take this view that we're building for the future. We underperform in some areas. I mean, if you sat down, this, this room is where we meet as a management team for a full day. We go through everything, and believe it or not, we spend much more time on the negatives than the positives. Like, what can we do better? Where did we not do well? What are our competitors? You know, they kick our butt in this country, this product, this service. And so we're always trying to learn and adjust. So hope, hopefully we'll continue to perform for our shareholders. Yeah, I mean, it's looking out over the horizon, it's tough. And you mentioned technology. I think you're spending, what, $10.8 billion on technology. The business is changing so much. There's, you know, blockchain, um, real-time payments. There's so many things that you guys are trying to do and get traction in. Yeah. Can you talk about real-time payments, for yeah. instance, and, and how that's evolving so for remember, you guys? Remember, banks have been huge users of technology my whole life. And technology is always evolving, but you have to use technology to do a better job for your client. So like even now, you can buy and sell stocks and screens. It costs a penny. You move money around the world. Safe, secure. So you have to do that. So the, the difference now is it's much faster, it's much more agile, you can do, you know, it's much more modularized. So you can take out a little piece of what used to be a huge system that would give you your statement, you can take out a little piece and improve that one little piece. Like, mm. you know, give you a piece of data or, or give you the ability to do something on the phone you couldn't do before. And so, and real-time payments was a big deal. So the banking system did a terrible job in updating its own system. So we now have Zelle, which is the banks got together, it's open, it'll be open to all the banks, Real-time, secure, so I can send you money in Zelle, and you, you'll get it you know, within 10 seconds or a minute later. We're going to give you split the bill and all these other things that people want. And it's out there. It's growing quite fast. And we're just starting. Not all the banks hooked up. We haven't really started advertising. Uh, we want to make it ubiquitous, and I hope, hopefully we'll do that. Uh, and then we also have a real-time payment system, again, built by banks and the TCH for wholesale payments. You know, so that you, now, of course, in wholesale payments, some of you don't want real-time. I'm going to put them through security checks and all that, but the fact is we need to do those things to deliver more for our clients. And so th those have been built, they're being rolled out as we speak. But it's so competitive, and it seems to me that the margins just become really compressed. Can you make money going forward in yeah. these businesses? So I made a chart this years ago about margins. We, when people complain about margins, I say, that's been going on my whole life. Margin and compressing, and that's called capitalism, hmm. you know, and we deploy capital and research. So the cost of everything we do is about a tenth of what it was 20 years ago. Stocks, 25 cents, two cents. Uh, swap spreads, muni spreads, bond spreads, the ability to do things. And in the same time, you're giving people straight through processing, better fraud checks, so constant improvement. That's a, a given. So I tell people, you should look at business that you're going to have decreasing margins. That does not mean you have decreasing returns on capital, which is far more important. And yeah, we're going to invest. And we're going to give you know, people certain things for free. We have some great product coming out. And so I want you to, if you, I hope you have a Chase account. But you're going to, I do. You're going to get some great Full stuff this year, including uh -huh. trading, robo-investing, you know, advisory investing, and with com very competitive pricing type thing. And we haven't done it all yet, but we're going to do it. So that you, you love doing business with us. And we make it easy to move money, easy to send it to your kids, easy to buy and sell and easy to do research, you know, we we'll give you some of our research and, you know, make your life easier. Where you say, that's a great company, I'm a, you should put your accounts there. I have to ask you about President Trump. Um, I know you talk to him sometimes. How often do you talk to him? What do you guys talk about? How's he doing? Yeah. So, you know, I, I didn't really know him that much before, but I am the chairman of the Business Roundtable. So we periodically, and I deal with other CEOs all the time, go talk to them about issues that are important to the business community, like like trade, immigration, tax, et cetera, but, but not that much. I mean, you know, uh, so I think the last time I spoke to him was a month ago, and it was about trade, and obviously we didn't 
we weren't didn't we weren't very effective. You weren't exactly <laughs> eye to eye. No, but we were very honest, and he likes honesty, and we told him what we thought, and it wasn't what he you know, thought at the time. So, but I think it's important that he listens and that we impart what we think. And how's he doing? What's your assessment? I'm, I, I'm not going to assess the president after a year. You know, I, when, I, when I write my letter, I go through policy by policy by policy. I think tax reform is good. I think regulatory reform is good. I hope he can get some real immigration, the whole deal done, not just the wall. Uh, uh, and on trade, we have a different opinion. I think we want the same outcome. So again, you know, you, when you argue about means and the outcome we want, and he's the, he has a different way about going about it. Last question, Jamie. Um, what keeps you up at night, and what's the biggest opportunity for J.P. Morgan Chase? I think um, you know I, I can't give you the biggest opportunity because I make a list of all of them. They're large. We're open, going to be open 400 branches over the next couple of years in multiple cities. We have online uh, investing coming. We've got real-time payments coming. Uh, we, we got unbelievable stuff coming, and global, what we're doing in custody and cash management is unbelievable. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited about all of it. It's all, most of it's organic, which I think is, is hard, but good. And uh, what keeps me up at night, I think, it, and this is not about, and we are very good at cyber, but I think cyber is a, it's literally so bad, and the government knows, but we, all, we need to get better faster. I mean, th this is an arms race, and we better do better at it. So I'd put that there. And I, you know, I don't, I'm not worried that much about volatile markets. I always talk about why, why people are so surprised, and it's happened all our lives. And, you know, uh, and the why is maybe more important than what. So, uh, but so I put cyber there. And the other one is po policy. I think you've seen around the world policies which could be bad for growth and bad for people, and often policy done in the name of good that has the absolute opposite effect. So we need to have good policy, collaborate, work with people, get solutions to all the problems we spoke about this morning. All right, sounds like the opportunity list might be longer than the what keeps you up at night list then. Yes. All right, let's leave it at that. Jamie Dimon, CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, thanks very much for your time. Andy, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Yahoo Finance Presents podcast. Let us know what you think. Tweet us at Yahoo Finance and check out the Yahoo Finance app for in-depth analysis of the J.P. Morgan letter and the interview. And please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.